Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we are discussing filmmaker, writer, producer, Graydon Clark. A Force of Nature has directed 20 exploitation films. You may know such titles as Joysticks, Satan's Cheerleaders, Black Shampoo, Final Justice, Angel's Brigade, and of course... The second and lesser of the two Lombada movies that came out in the year 1990, The Forbidden Dance. Now, Graydon Clark is oddly a filmmaker I have heard a lot about when I was getting into the cult film scene. But we're not discussing him because he's a guy that we love and that we feel needs his due. I think we're mostly talking about him because... Yeah, we why, don't know. Why, why are we doing a Graydon Clark episode, actually? Can we can we break that down? Because I'm still not sure. I think it's funny because we look at his films, and I've always kind of bounced off of them. Yes. But I do know people who love them. Yeah. And so I did want to watch them and go, what am I missing? What what important ingredient that Graydon Clark is putting out there that I am either allergic to or I'm not tasting quite correctly? Okay, so to pull back, Graydon Clark has for many years been just a a presence, you know, a, 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 in a low-level way, a kind of brand in cults and exploitation film circles. Like, no normal person will have ever heard his name, though. Yeah, so if you've never heard of him, that's great. But, like, boutique Blu-ray labels have put out his movies with great success. He's active on the convention circuit. He's a very visible figure. He... You know, writes, produces, directs all his films. He, you know, he's one of those like entrepreneurial force of nature filmmakers and his films, you know, were consistently successful. He's worked in like every genre. So, you know, if you're interested in black exploitation, you're interested in horror, you're interested in like 80s boner comedies. You know, you'll you'll probably eventually find your way to Graydon Clark somewhere. And all of his films have been released on boutique Blu-ray labels. And I think the reason for that is he owns the rights to a lot of his films. So I think that these labels can approach him and go, hey, can we put it out? Because I remember when Scream Factory was starting, Without Warning was one of their first titles. Well, he's... A quintessential exploitation filmmaker in the sense that he's always capitalizing on what's trendy at that moment, and he's always coming up with zingy, high-concept premises. So you've got a big movie like Shampoo with Warren Beatty, and black exploitation is marketable at the time. So how about Black Shampoo? Yeah, I mean, Black Emmanuel made some money, turned into a whole series. Why can't we just do Black Shampoo? Or, you know, Charlie's Angels is popular on TV. So how about Angels Brigade? Mm -hmm. And so I've watched many of his movies in the decades of my life and every time i watch them it ends and i go well, that wasn't very good <laughs> and like but then i'll you know i don't want to say that people like love his movies other than like a select few for example mike white of the projection boost loves black shampoo and that's great yeah but like Am I missing something when I watch these movies? I think we're doing him as well because we are obsessed with these filmmakers on the margins that in, you know, cult film circles just get grandfathered in and they're like, oh yeah, we, we know who Graydon Clark is, right? Yeah, I think I wanted to investigate him a little bit because I, I have also bounced off this filmography and I kind of wanted to see... Like, what is animating Graydon Clark? Mm. You know, there are a lot of cult exploitation filmmakers where you find the personality and you come to love them a little bit more. Mm. And and also, Graydon Clark, when you see him interviewed, I say this with affection, he's a proud man, you know? He has perhaps has a little bit of an ego. I say this as affectionately as possible because we're going to say more nice things about him coming up. And I always kind of, you know, I've, I've seen his movies and I thought, like, 
these don't look like movies that somebody who cared made. Mm. And I wanted to find that caring because he obviously does care a lot. He cares about something. Yeah. You know, when we talk about a filmmaker like Sam Newfield, who we're very interested in, even though that there is there like a great and Clark ishness to his work. Sam Newfield, who worked back in the studio system or William Bodine. Yeah. Those were like company men. They were journeymen and, and they worked on an assembly line. William Bodine, you know, started at movie studios. And then when his career went into the tank, he went over to monogram and yeah. then he just did whatever Any monogram. job. Cause he would bring it yeah. in faster than anybody else. And he continued to work. But Graydon Clark was working way after that. He was working in the seventies, eighties and early nineties and independently. Yeah. He would self-finance a lot of his movies and, or most of them, even. I think most of them, yes. Yeah, except for a few of the ones he did with Menahem Golan towards mm-hmm. the end. And it's like, there's got there's some passion there. You know, much like with Roger Corman, who's, you know, a businessman first and foremost. But as I've heard Roger Corman say, yeah, you know, everyone says I'm obsessed with money, but if you really wanted to make money, get into real estate. Yeah, he could have done anything else. Yeah. And he would have made money. Yeah. Now, Roger Corman, does it start to fade in the 90s? Yes, but that's like anybody who does a job. That's just what he's good at. And he's got he's gotten old. Yeah. But also with Graydon Clark, I think I, I first came to know Graydon Clark through Mystery Science Theater, which, mm. is, which is how many people come to learn many exploitation Wait, which movie did they show? Final Justice? They did Final Justice with Joe Don Baker, which is a fan favorite episode. And they did Angel's Brigade, renamed Angel's Revenge. And that was one that I saw a lot when I was a kid. So from an early age, the idea that he was like one of those guys was planted in my head. And I mean, Final Justice... We talk about mystery science theater sometimes, and and sometimes we'll say, oh, you know, there's the, the yeah, they're mean to it. They're doesn't mean. deserve the I'm reputation. T- it I'm has. telling you, just watch the MST3K of Final Justice. It's so much better. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's a movie that definitely benefits from having the robots talking through it. I have the MVD version on my shelf. I don't need anything else. Will oh man, can we talk about Jordan Baker for a second? Because we had an interesting conversation while we were watching the movie. Because it comes up because Jordan Baker worked with Graydon Clark a lot. And Graydon Clark really loved working with Joe Don Baker. Yeah. And he, he thought he was like an inventive actor. He loved what he brought to the movies. I heard an interview with Graydon Clark where he said something like, you know, people think Joe Don's a dumb Texan, but he's anything but, you know, he studied at the actor studio. He cared very deeply about his craft. And honestly, you look at the three movies that Joe Don Baker made with Graydon Clark, Wacko especially, I think he's terrific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's really funny. Well, there's an anecdote in Graydon Clark's biography, which I will keep bringing it up because I think it's kind of a key to who he is and how he works. And unlocking what there is to appreciate. Mm. And that, like, you told me the anecdote that Joe Don Baker... The first movie they made together was Wacko, a horror comedy from 1982. And, Woof. And, yes. <laughs> I don't recommend it. But Joe, Joe Don Baker's career was kind of on the downturn at this point. And Graydon and Joe Don met with Joe Don's agent to negotiate terms. And he said, we got a $300,000 budget. You get $100,000. Joe Don said, that's great. I have a question. So I'm all, I'm playing the killer. Oh, spoiler alert for Wacko. Yeah, sorry. The pumpkin-headed serial killer. But I'm also playing like the investigator character. Do I wear the actual pumpkin head? Am I the Michael Myers character? And Graydon said, oh, no, 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 we don't really have, we don't really have the, somebody else. A stand-in will do that. Joe Don says, I'll do this movie only if I can also play the killer. Oh, that rules. And Graydon Clark said, we'd love that. That'd be fantastic. Would make the movie better, but it's still only $100,000. And Joe Don said, sold. You got a deal. <laughs> and 
you hear that, and it's like, how can you not love Joe Don Baker? I mean, I know we're in a justice for Joe Don Baker corner, but you told me an anecdote about him doing interviews for Walking Tall okay. that I'd never heard of before. I heard Joel Hodgson say this in an interview somewhere. And if anybody knows Joel Hodgson, you can go ask him, and I'm sure he'll tell you. Mm -hmm. Shout Factory, when they released Walking Tall had an interview with Jodan Baker and they also released the mystery science theater episodes. And so they asked Jodan Baker, would you do an interview for the Mitchell release? And Jodan said, absolutely not. And they said, Oh, well, Mr. Baker, you know, it's just, it's just kind of in fun, you know, it's uh, and, and Jodan said, they didn't just go after Mitchell. They went after Jodan Baker. They said my name. And you hear that and you're like, Oh, listen to this dumb guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Watch that Mitchell episode. They go after Jodan Baker. And I feel like when you mention Jodan Baker, you say that name, you think, ah, Mitchell, <laughs> what a dumb, dumb. Like if you think about Jodan Baker at all in mm. the year 2024, you're thinking of Mitchell and Mr science theater do you think he would be considered i mean people who like him think he's a great actor more respectable now if he hadn't been roasted on mst3k i mean he might honestly be a little forgotten who mm. knows which would also be a shame yeah i don't think he would because in all the movies that he's in i was like oh that guy rules and i never watch mst3k but i knew who he was yeah well he was in in the 90s that was like a new heyday for oh him. yeah he's in every like big disaster movie and stuff like that Yeah, congo and reality bites and all sorts of stuff anyway Jodan Baker digression. We love him. He's great. Mm. He's even good in Final Justice. Oh, yeah, he is in a role where he is asked to do very little in Malta. <laughs> yeah, and bad movie. Yeah, to be bad fair. movie. <laughs> Not good. But getting back to Graydon Clark, we both skimmed his autobiography on the cheap, My Life in Low Budget Filmmaking, which is a best case scenario for what a Graydon Clark autobiography would be. Now, I had read this maybe a decade ago, and I think maybe my good experience of reading the book stayed with me. And I was like, I have some affinity for Graydon Clark, right? But then I kept watching his movies and I was like, what is this cognitive dissonance that I'm experiencing? Yeah, I mean, watching his movies this week, bit of a chore, not gonna lie. Yep. And I've seen most of them. So some of them were revisiting an old family member who has seen better days. The book is great because he goes through every movie. There's a chapter on every movie he ever made and he breaks it down by like inception, pre-production, filming release and the way that he lays it out is that he gives you prices for everything and there are probably fictionalized conversations between people where it's like written like a script as like two people conversing throughout very strange structure yeah but it's very fun to read yeah and i'm sure like the the general sense of the conversation is true like yes. in the later ones when he's talking to Manaham Golan like he he conveys something of Manaham's energy yeah and obsession with taking down Globus yeah. also making a Lambada movie <laughs> yeah. We're gonna, we have to get it out before he does but the book is wonderfully kind of unsentimental because it's going through every movie and just putting it in kind of the basic business terms dollars and cents and along the way you hear lots of great stories because along the way his movies are full of old-timer actors who need work you know your john carradine's your george kennedy's your joe don baker's and you hear great stories about them or he's running into people like you know he's he's filming around the same time roman polanski is making pirates yeah so it's like he encounters him he's in russia the same time michael moore is there so mm -hmm. he hangs out with michael moore and if you go all the way back to the beginning of the book it starts with like i was a kid that's all now let's get into the movies which you're really interested in. In this book, he shows a understanding of delivering what an audience who's coming to this project would want that I do not see that much in his movies. Well, yeah, the movies are interesting because 
most of them would get a passing grade. Yes. In the, in, like, like if you were the financier, yeah. you know, if you were a financier and you were delivered this, it'd say, yeah, you, you ticked all the boxes. Well, that is covered multiple times in the book mm-hmm. of like him screening it for someone to go, oh yeah, it's pretty good. Let's get it out there. And so early on, early in his career, he, he got his start working for a guy named Al Adams. Yeah. So he came to LA because he just had no other plans. And he said, I guess I'll be an actor. He grew up in Michigan, mm-hmm. you know, in a conservative area area he liked going to see movies he himself was politically liberal which is something that comes up in the book over and over again and and is a rare instance of him expressing a sort of like personal stake in the movies like for example the first black exploitation movie he made the bad bunch he he mentions that he was motivated to create something that like that had a positive message about race you know in a moment of racial tension Mm -hmm. but anyway he goes to la and the first person he works with First person he can get a job with is Al Adamson. Now, Al Adamson, that Nepo baby himself. Oh, yeah. Because his father was a Poverty Row Cowboy yeah, star. Yeah, he's a real Sam Levinson, isn't he? <laughs> is an infamous director, well, famous to us, yeah. for d- making such films as Dracula versus Frankenstein. Blazing stewardesses. Mm-hmm. And he was a guy that taught Graydon Clark, get the most withered old actor you can get who was famous 30 years before because that's all an investor wants. Once they see that name, they will pony up the cash. And you look at a movie like Al Adamson's Dracula versus Frankenstein and it fails on every technical level. It is uh, appallingly bad just on a technical level. Mm. And What I, are you talking about? Gary Graver shooting that film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, not very well. <laughs> no, not that one. But... I would take any Al Adamson movie over any Graydon Clark. I so, would too. Why I'm be, is I'm that? I'm being hyperbolic yeah. here, but but is it because Graydon Clark, as a businessman, is smart enough to be able to pass those QC checks? Yeah, and this is the thing. In Graydon Clark's autobiography, he says words to the effect of, listen, I don't want to talk down on Al Adamson. He gave me a job. I really respect him, but he just didn't know how to direct a movie. He didn't know how to direct actors. He didn't know how to do this or that. And, you know, there are, like, Jodon Baker's good in some of the movies. You know, there are good performances in yeah. Graydon Clark movies. Those movies where he works with a lot of teenagers, the teenagers are all good, mm-hmm. and the movies are lifeless. Yeah, too. that's the issue, right? They just kind of lay there. Yeah, and I'll take an Al Adamson movie where... It's like scruffy, you barely feel like the camera passed through the lens. And because he doesn't know how to make a movie, he'll show you things you've never seen before. Mm, Like Lon Chaney Jr. who can't talk, just uh, shambling through frame. Man, I love the story. I can't remember where I heard this story. Maybe it was Gary Graver who told it. Oh, this is the smoking. I I was thinking like behind the scenes of Dracula versus Frankenstein where Lon Chaney Jr. is there and J. Carol Nash is there. And... Lon Chaney Jr. is just saying over and over again, I want to die. I want to <laughs> die. And J. Carol Nash is going, shut up. <laughs> it's like the three stooges. <laughs> He's just so old, so alcoholic, so in pain all the time. Mm. Probably has cancer. And know? Al Adamson, or specifically his producer, Sam Sherman, who brought a lot of these old actors yeah. into the fold, teaching this young Graydon Clark, who he worked on these sets. He has a story about having to give direction to Colonel Sanders, who was <laughs> the real Colonel Sanders. The real one. That was in one of the Al Adamson films. And also... They ate KFC every day on set. A nightmare. (laughs) He realized, like, oh, I want to make movies. Like, I'm 24 years old. This was his Babylon being on these sets. Mm -hmm. And Graydon Clark is a more competent filmmaker than Al Adamson, if you're just going by the book. But then you watch his second film, Black Shampoo. Yeah, so this movie starts, and we're like... 
maybe this will be fun. Oh yeah, first ten minutes, I'm on board. It is yeah a black exploitation riff on the Warren Beatty Hal Ashby shampoo, where you know he's a uh, hairdresser by day, uh, a sex st- machine by night, or by day as yeah, well. Yeah, and by day he goes all throughout Hollywood and satisfies you know the lovely white ladies the you know while their husbands are away. He meets them at the pool and he gives them massages and they turn into something else. Now the first issue is that John Daniels in the main role in this looks very bored. Oh yeah, <laughs> he you know he delivers his lines he flubs them a few times as well but there's no kind of charisma you need for this kind of picture well one thing that graden clark isn't necessarily super competent at is screenwriting so this movie and satan's cheerleaders which we also watched you know they peak in their first 10 or 15 minutes when you're kind of getting acquainted with the idea well they're driving movies yeah. That you play them at the drive-in, and then, you know, you can canoodle, you can go get some popcorn, and ain't that, missing anything. And that is the only way they are legible, because both of them in their in their back halves mm. are unwatchable. Like, Black Shampoo just turns into a gangster plot where the hero's on the run. He uses a chainsaw at the end, I think. That's kind yeah. of fun. Yeah. Okay, and, and Satan's Cheerleaders, which is one of the other, like, famous titles from his filmography, opens on the beach. Yeah. You know? You got the cheerleaders. We're on the beach for a long time. I clocked it. We don't leave that beach for, like, ten minutes <laughs> just running around and then you know they're on the football field then they're in the locker room Mm -hmm. there is some nudity in this movie Mm -hmm. not not that it's it's pretty tame not that much and oh what a cast of all-stars we have on screen oh my god john carradine john carradine who i think is good in this movie in one scene yeah as like a homeless man on the side of the road there's a there's a great anecdote in graden's autobiography where he says something like like John Carradine was doing some maneuver that was maybe physically uncomfortable. Bending over. Yeah, bending over. Yeah. And and Graydon was like, oh, John, you don't have to do that. And John Carradine was like, nonsense. John Ford never told me that I should be comfortable and neither should you. <laughs> he like Apparently he cared very deeply about Money, his performance. Money, please. Yeah. <laughs> But I don't know. I know you look at so many of those later John Carradine performances and he really does like. Yeah. Bring All it. those Fred Olin Ray films that yeah. may have been edited into another motion picture. <laughs> and yeah. And you also have, of course, people are coming to the theater for Charlie Chaplin's son. Oh, Sidney Chaplin, who looks awful. And well, you know, it's the, the folks, the cheerleaders, they run up against Satanists. Yeah. And Sydney, guys in robes. Sidney Chaplin, the son of Charlie, is the main guy in the robe. And he looks terrible. He's got a horrible little Van Dyke beard. <laughs> well, that's how you know he's a devil worshiper. And the second half of this movie, I mean, there's nothing to say about this movie. The second half of it is just like Gus Wandering Van, through the woods. Gus Van Sant's Jerry, mm. you know, just walking. But people have an affection for this movie. It's constantly re-released on Blu-ray again and again and again. I think that's just the title. Yes. That's, you think it, that's what it is? Well, some of it is nostalgia as well. I think a lot of it is tied into nostalgia with Graydon Clark's movies. And when you say that this, like when we went to the Mahoning Drive-In that year mm. and we would see like 50s monster movies there, you I remember you saying to me like, oh, the movies make sense now because, <laughs> because when you're hearing the sound kind of echoing and you can go to the snack bar and you can come back and if you're there with your with your girlfriend and somebody's getting or giving a hand job, mm-hmm. the whole thing makes more sense. You don't yeah. have to pay close attention to the movie. But when you're sitting at home, like on your giant TV, watching Satan's cheerleaders, just stare, just being like, "Don't look at my phone. Don't look at my phone. 
I'm doing this for my podcast. I hope Chaplin will show up at any second and he'll bring the laughs, right? That Chaplin name? <laughs> yeah, Sidney Chaplin does not have his father's balletic grace mm-hmm. or slapstick chops. Now, have you seen Without Warning? I know you didn't watch it for no, this week. No, I, I haven't. And that's probably the biggest, like, grade and blind spot I have. Because mm. that one stars Jack Palant, Martin Landau, Neville Brand, Cameron Mitchell, David Caruso, the guy who played the Predator, Kevin Peter Hall. Jack Palance is definitely a member of the Graydon Clark Repertory Company because he's the villain in Angel's Brigade as well. Mm. Angel's Brigade also has an awesome cast. It has Jim Backus, Alan Hale Jr., Peter Lawford, Arthur Godfrey. A lot of people are like, I don't know any of those names. And it's like, you had to be born in the 50s. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah. Be taking in entertainment in the 50s. It's like, it's like, let's say you're watching a Dean Martin celebrity roast and not the guys who are really close to the dais. <laughs> yeah, all no, the way. Not, the not Muhammad Ali and Bob Hope, but further back. And it's like, yeah, Arthur Godfrey. <laughs> now, I did watch Joysticks again. We talked about this a few episodes ago. It actually started the Graydon Clark discussion. Well, yeah, because two weeks ago, I went to see Joysticks projected on beautiful, shimmering 35 millimeter. Joysticks is a post-Animal House, post-Porky's teen gross-out boner comedy. It's set at a video arcade, and Jodon Baker plays the mean authority figure who wants to shut down the arcade. Now, out of all of his films, I think this is the one that has the biggest cult audience. You think so? More than Uninvited? Absolutely. Only because Joysticks, like, captures a moment in time that even people that were not there feel nostalgic for. Well, also, yeah, that's true. The video game stuff. That's very important, yes. And, and Joysticks got a wider release than most of his movies. Like, it played... Like, it made multiple millions of dollars. It played movie theaters. And I would say it's got personality, too, that is representative of that time and a very exaggerated version of it. And it gives... You know, we talked about, like, oh, he's not giving the goods. This movie... There's naked ladies every couple minutes. Like, if you are a prepubescent boy, like, this is... The movies don't get much better than this. That's true, and there's, like, a lot of comedy. That's one way to put it. Yes, there's a lot of comedy. I mean, it's not the best comedy you've ever seen, but there's, like, you know, there's a... There's a John Belushi type character who's always, you know. Who's like probably the grossest you could make a John Belushi character be. Have you seen King Frat? I have, yes. I I think the guy in that one beats him. But (laughs) But like at one point, isn't he like having a fake seizure on the ground or something like that? And Joe Don Baker's like, I'm not giving that guy mouth to mouth. (laughs) The, the, The scene in Joysticks that I love so much is the farce scene where it's like, that that guy and the other the the nerdy boy like sneak into Jodan Baker's oh, house. Oh yeah, and then Jodan Baker's wife starts having sex with the nerdy guy. She's asleep and yeah. she's like, "Oh, honey." <laughs> and then Jodan like, Baker gets in between them and then and he Jodan Baker walks in the room and he doesn't notice nope. the guy. <laughs> Sits down. I mean, this is classic French farce like you said. And then the <laughs> the John Belushi guy gets out of the closet, but he farts and then Jodan Baker's like <laughs> Just as he's on his way out the door, he farts. <laughs> and then Jodan Baker's like, "Oh, I've been telling you to not eat what Whatever, and he sprays deodorant. I mean, all those pieces are working together. I can understand, you know, people feel like it's when we brought it up, a fish called Wanda over here <laughs> with all of the moving parts. A lot clock. of people said stuff like in the Discord of the Important Cinema Club. It's better than most of the boner comedies coming out during this period. It is in the sense that there's always something happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I was not, I was not bored watching Joysticks two weeks ago. Yeah, there was always something happening. It is. I mean, there's no nutritional value here. None of the jokes are good. I, I never laughed in an honest way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I did laugh. Mm. I laughed in a kind of like, this is ridiculous way. Yeah. So a laugh, a laugh, laugh, yeah. laugh you know. <laughs> and so the uninvited, I think has only been 
becoming famous lately because some YouTube personalities or things like that have been discovering it. And they're like, there's this movie where there's a cat inside of another cat and it's killing people. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I did vinegar syndrome put this one out. They did. Yeah. I mean, that helps too. uninvited. It's a later one. It's 1988. And the root of how this was created was that he thought he could shoot in the tank that existed that Roman Polanski used for pirates. Mm-hmm. So he's like, oh, we'll shoot a movie there, boat, production value. That fell through. And he's like, I got a script, so I just got to shoot it somehow. And that's what they ended up doing. Yeah, so there's a, a, a cat, like a poison cat that was created by an unscrupulous corporation. Yeah, it looks like a normal cat. But it's got an evil cat inside. Mm-hmm. So when it attacks, a little cat, it's like in Alien, when the alien comes out of the stomach. Yeah. It's like that. And there are some gory attacks. This movie makes a lot more sense. You know, the cat's going around infecting people and they get sick and die. When I believe he wrote it as a rat. And then mm-hmm. someone said, that's gross. No one wants to see a rat movie. Make it a cat instead. And it's good that he made it a cat yeah. because it, that's a novelty value. It gives it just that little extra yeah. kick. Now, watching this movie and I was conscious like, OK, this is going to be the good one. This is the one. This is the one that people sometimes make the case for. Yeah. You know, it's like, OK, you may not you may not like Satan's cheerleaders, but this is the one that kind of works. It barely works. Yeah. It has a cat within a cat. There's some special effects. I mean, it's mostly takes place on a boat, yeah. so it has that kind of claustrophobic... It's a weird, what I like to call death march movies, where you're just watching people die slowly for 90 minutes. It's a bit of a Jason Takes Manhattan, you know? Yeah, but Jason J- Takes Manhattan doesn't have George Kennedy or Clue Gulliger. Man, whenever George Kennedy's on screen, it's just depressing. <laughs> you think so? He doesn't look like he's having much fun. Now, in his biography, Graydon Clark tells him, can you tone it down a little bit? Just toss off your lines. Now, is this revision? <laughs> based yeah. on the performance that exists in the movie. Clue Gulliger really gives it. Yeah. Isn't he wearing like fake teeth in the movie? Yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, they're taken off too early in the film and then we're stuck with the teenagers. I would say though, yeah, like this movie, again, it's it's competent. Yeah. And it, it sort of works in the sense that, yeah, there is a bit of like growing tension as the movie goes along. I but... think the novelty value of the cat was in the cat. That that takes yeah. people very far. Yeah. And we also watched another one. I, I don't know it's his biggest budget one it feels like it based on like the movies that we watch for this episode dance macabre well a lot of the Graydon clark movies he financed himself like yeah. he was constantly putting up a lien on his house to pay for these movies and selling his car oh man well the, we'll get to that I'll, I'll tell that story yeah that's depressing but dance macabre was one of a couple movies that he made with menahem golan the former head of canon films when he had broken away from canon and he and globus had each started separate companies so Menahem's was 21st century film distribution. And, it, you know, it's a famous story that the Lombada was very big. Globus had put Lombada into production, the movie. Golan then commissioned The Forbidden Dance. And these two Lombada movies, both made by a former Canon Films founder, debuted the same weekend. By all accounts, Graydon Clark's movie is the worst of the two. <laughs> Which is not where you want to be. <laughs> no. We didn't watch that one, though. No. We watched the Robert England movie. And I think because Robert England's a big star. 
that uh, wow man i say big star recognizable yeah Yeah, so dance macabre from 1992 we watched this one because the poster has robert england holding a gun and i heard that this is like his giallo movie Mm -hmm. which got me kind of excited it's like ooh, what does a graydon clark giallo look like before i forget i do want to mention this was also produced by harry allen towers (laughs) who didn't he do a bunch oh i thought he did a bunch of joe he did all the jess franco movies he did all of the classy jess franco movies that are always being released in 4k but they're not the good ones no like marquis de sad justine yeah or count Eugenie, dracula count Dra- venus oh, venus and furs is a good one though that, that's the good one yeah. yeah but the bloody judge you know Ugh, bore, yeah. boring he was trying to class up jess franco and that's not the place jess franco needs to be but dance macabre i was very i was interested in what this would look like because yeah what is a what is a 1990s graden clark giallo look like now reading in his autobiography this movie came about because Golan had made a movie with Robert England, and this is at the height of Freddy Krueger mania. Yeah, the Phantom of the Opera is a movie that he made. That's right. Phantom of the Opera, and this was supposed to be like, this will launch Robert England outside of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, with a, like turning the Phantom of the Opera into Freddy Krueger, basically. Mm. And it flopped, but he still had a two-picture player pay-or-play deal with Robert England. This is the great thing about Golan and Globus, is that like they were old-school studio head kind of guys, that they loved to make these deals, where like pay or play stuff which like no one was doing around the 90s that were like independent guys no why would you do that yeah and robert england you know he he had to make five hundred thousand dollars so either you make the movie and maybe get some profit or you just pay him five hundred thousand dollars and so they went to Graydon clark and said have you seen suspiria <laughs> give us that but lame yeah oh you mean like Terror? British Suspiria ripoff? No, no, no. Lamer than that. So yeah, Dance Macabre is, is not a very good movie. It benefited for me just from being the last of the Graydon Clark movies I watched this week and that it had some style. It did. I think maybe because of the budget that was being used for the film. So yeah, it features, you know, a young woman who's a dancer at the Ballet Russe. You know, mm. she's come to Russia to be a dancer, much like in Suspiria. Yes. And like one of the main novelties of this movie is that it was shot in Russia, you know, not long long after the end of the Soviet Union. The cinematographer of the film, Nikolai Pokupsev, he shot Dead Man's Letters from 1986, like a famous Russian film, as well as A Visitor to a Museum. So like, there's someone who knows what they're doing behind the camera on this. Well, just a brief digression. I mean, the early Graydon Clark movies, like Satan's Cheerleaders, are shot by Dean Cundy. Yes, and they're shot by him because the guy on Black Shampoo had a car accident and had to drop out. So like his assistant took over and Dean Cundy just did the work. You know, years before Big Trouble in Little China. Or, much, much. Or I the mean, thing. he did the job that was asked for him yeah. in the time that was presented. I mean, you know, Graydon Clark also worked with Laszlo Kovacs on the Al Adamson films. As well as in the 80s, Graydon's main cinematographer was the grandson of Joseph von Sternberg, Nicholas von Sternberg. Was that the guy who shot Dolomite? Yep. Yes. <laughs> it is. Okay. So anyway, but getting back to Dance Macabre, I mean, it looks like a movie it looks like a movie i mean it has all those like dario argento type flourishes you know the floating camera Mm -hmm. the the just the weird gels you know the flashes during the murder sequences suddenly like the we get some colorful stuff but nothing violent happens in the murder scenes and they're all scored to very bad music. And, but he also kind of shoots the murder scenes like Dario Argento murder scenes. I'm not to not to say that he's yeah, anywhere near he his tries. Voice, <laughs> but but like, you know, the scenes of just like the killer's hands like 
you this know, is like the- Bruno Mattei seeing Predator and then making Robo War, for example. Yeah, and the plot, without spoiling anything, it has a bit of a dress to kill. I hope you like Robert England because there's a lot of him in this. Yeah, but and I mean the the thing is, the movie is like pretty slow, pretty boring. Mm. It, lacks focus i'm like is there a protagonist in this movie oh yeah yeah it's 97 minutes and it feels 20 minutes too long and i just feel sort of affectionate towards it because <laughs> it's it's funny to see graden clark try mm-hmm. he is trying something now is it because suddenly he had resources and he wasn't just pulling it out just delivering a picture with all the resources that he had even though that like when he talks about the movies that he made they don't seem like struggles he's very proud that he gets them like under budget, you know, he gets them delivered. And the struggle mostly comes with distribution of like, in the book, he talks a lot about being like stiff by distributors who say they didn't make any money or they declare bankruptcy before they can pay him. Like, mm. that's where his real troubles come from. While actually making the movies in the book, you get the sense that they were pleasant enough experiences doing. His last movie, Star Games from 1998, which I have not seen, but it stars his children as well as Tony Curtis in a classic like guy standing in front of a green screen performance and this was the chapter that i went straight to in this autobiography (laughs) because i've always been a little bit fast not fascinated enough to watch this movie but just Mm. curious about it it cost allegedly fifty thousand dollars so that was the budget and they they had ten thousand dollars set aside for a movie star and they said well tony curtis is available but he wants 30. okay so tony tony curtis at this point 1998 that is wild but also, $30,000, not that much money. To get Tony Curtis in yeah. front of a green screen? To get to get a star for okay. your movie. Uh, anyway. Welcome to Laser Light Video Classics. <laughs> hey, I'm Tony Curtis. Yep. Welcome to Delta Laser Light Special Edition Classics. So, like, this is post-Tony Curtis doing the black glove intros for public domain films. Yeah. You think he got paid thirty grand for those? I, I doubt it. Yeah. They probably could have got him for ten. But anyway, to, to get that extra $20,000... Graydon sold his car. Now, according to the book, they did make some profit on this movie. I think he said he got a profit of $50,000 when all the foreign sales were put Mm -hmm. in. But that was the last Graydon Clark movie to this date because I have to assume the market has changed, you know? And, you know, he maybe became a teacher or I don't know what he's doing these days. Yeah, yeah. Who who knows what he's doing? But it's like movies like this, they don't go to drive-in screens anymore. He probably doesn't want to, he probably doesn't want to keep self-financing these movies that have no like market you know the direct-to-video market isn't what it once was he probably doesn't want to make a movie for five thousand dollars on tubi Mm -hmm. and he probably just if he's old yeah and he doesn't need to make movies like but we're going back to what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast is is there a way into grade and clark like reading his biography loved it thought it was great like found it entertaining and in that perfect biography way I was excited to see the movies that he was making through this process and the way that he described it. I have two final thoughts on Graydon Clark. One, I would say that maybe you would enjoy these movies if you just kind of like the flavor of them. Mm-hmm. If, like, I want a 70s drive-in style movie. Yeah. Satan's Cheerleaders. Yes. yes. It has that texture. Joysticks. It has the texture of an 80s boner, boner comedy. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you want something that has that texture, like, kind of at the expense of artistry. And sometimes I've been in that And personality. Mood. Yeah. But secondly, I would say, 
I kept having the feeling watching these movies that Graydon Clark is kind of like if you took Larry Cohen and took everything special out of it, mm. you know, because like he's going to the new popular thing and he wants to make a movie based on it. Yeah. But there's no idiosyncratic voice there. Exactly. And they're very similar. They often self-financed a lot of their movies, yep. very resourceful guys who were always like, you know, hustling and always looking for the next deal. And yet in Larry Cohen's movies, he's always finding like an off kilter way to make it. He's always inserting some interesting idea or oftentimes many interesting ideas. Well, Larry Cohen was a guy that was driven to create as well. Mm -hmm. Like you hear like in the last years of his life, he had like a hundred screenplays he could not get rid of, yeah. but he kept writing them. And like, he was always like, Larry Cohen was a master of just like doing very strange things with tone. If you put like, you know, the giant flying serpent on the poster, he realized that's all that matters. And then the movie itself, you know, Michael Moriarty could be giving that weird performance in the center of it or the stuff. Like as long as you've got the poster that has like, you know, the high concept premise of the the ice cream that mm. eats people, then you can do whatever you want in the movie. Well, Graydon Clark was more like, I'm going to give people what they expect at the bare level. And that's it. Yeah. And I think there's still interesting there for someone who could do this for so long independently. Mm -hmm. But uh, will we be revisiting any Graydon Clark movies? You haven't seen Without Warning. You got to see that one. Well, I know that my journey with Graydon Clark is not over. Mm -hmm. I Yours isn't either. <laughs> no, I haven't seen The Return. Guys which, like us yeah. will continue every now and then dipping into the Graydon Skinheads, Clark. which yeah. I, I looked at. I was like, I don't know if I have time to watch this, but what is this? Yeah. So yeah, big filmography, lots to explore there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Don't don't listen to Justin. Read read his autobiography. I would highly recommend it. You can get it like on Amazon. It's like an e-publication. And actually, if, if I were to recommend just one Graydon Clark movie, I'd say Joysticks. Yeah, I would say Joysticks as well. Yeah. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Evan Gordon. And he goes, hey, Justin and Will. First time, long time, love the pod, and in any other requisite greetings. I wanted to reach out specifically to say thanks for introducing me to, among several other fantastic cinematic worlds, the work of Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh. After hosting 24 and 12-hour marathons last year, I decided this year I tried to do some public-facing programming. After reaching out to a local microcinema and the extremely accessible Matt Farley, I have my first public event on the calendar. I know you all have your own screenings to plug, but as the North American regional spokespersons for Motor Media, I was hoping you might let the people know that on Saturday, March 16th at 7 p.m. at Spacey Microcinema in Dallas, Texas, there will be a double bill of Heard She Got Married and Heard She Got Murdered, followed by a virtual Q&A with Matt and Charlie. I'm hoping to sell the 35-seat place out and hopefully to get to work with them again. And you guys probably have the highest concentration of Moturn fan listeners this side of the Moturn infomercial podcast. Regardless, if you read this on air, I just wanted to thank you for inspiring me and to push my boundaries beyond hosting DIY concerts. Yeah, if you live around that area, go see this screening. Dallas, Texas. My God. Go 35 seats? Come on, you can fill that out, right? Yeah, we must have listeners in Dallas. Mm. Go, go to this and create a little community. Now, can I also say... We're not going to plug everything everyone sends us. No, we will not. So, but, so don't get your hopes up. But this... This specifically, yes. And I know that Evan Gordon has been a longtime listener because I've seen his name pop up mm -hmm. and stuff as well. I think this is a great project too. And I'm very moved also by the idea that we, we might have inspired him to, you know, create something like this. And if you're like, oh, I've seen Her, She Got Murdered. I have it on Blu-ray. No, you haven't. 
there are many different versions yes. of her. She got murdered. You will see a different version. And also imagine seeing two Matt Farley, Charlie Roxburg movies with your fellow fans. Yes. Or maybe even some people who don't know who they are discovering it with you. Yeah. What an experience. So thanks again for the letter, Evan. And I hope your screening goes very well. Well, speaking of screenings to plug, April 16th. Mark this date on your calendar. April 16th. It's so far away from when this is coming out. I know. It's very far away. But we're just, you know, if you're from another country. You need to make plans. If you're from another continent, if you're in the People's Republic of China, if you're in what other countries are around there? Japan? Yeah. Hey, Australia? Mm -hmm. Good day, mate. Yeah. The South Pole? Yeah. You know, that's plenty of time to get a ticket to Toronto because Justin and I are returning to the Fox Theater on April 16th for our screening series, Important Cinema Club Masterpiece Classics, a beautiful, huge, palatial movie theater in the extreme east end of Toronto. We will be showing Gamera Super Monster. Wait, why Gamera Super Monster? Why not the first Gamera movie, the second or the third? Well, first, I'm going to tell you who Gamera is. Mm. And then and then I'll exp- uh, then I'll answer those questions. Those are good questions, <laughs> sir. Yes. Gamera is, you know Godzilla? You you've heard of Godzilla, right? I know of Godzilla, yes. Yeah, he's great. Okay. What if I told you that there's a second greatest Japanese giant monster? What? He's a giant flying turtle. <gasps> he's the friend of all children. Mm. And he was a huge star throughout the 1960s, a rival to Godzilla. Oh, well, now that I know who he is, I can't wait to watch the first movie at the Fox Cinema, right? You don't need to see the first movie. You don't need to see any... Well, you should see see all those movies. Yes. We're, we're watching the last of the original series from 1980 because it is the best of Gamera. It is literally a clip show of all the previous movies. You get to see all the best scenes from all the Gamera movies. Gamera fighting Gaios, Viran, Guiron. All your favorites. Shamp, Zeppo, <laughs> yeah. all, the, all the villains. The Ritz brothers. All tied together with an incredible plot. It's like a Power Rangers episode where alien invaders are going to take over the Earth and three space ladies in these unitards got to come down and team up with a little boy to wrangle Gamera and have him wrestle all of his greatest villains. Not much new footage will be show. (laughs) But the footage you see will be great. This movie, I'm telling you, it's like, get five pixie sticks and eat them all at once. Like, this film is always, like, poo-pooed on in the same way that Godzilla's Revenge is, because they're like, it's mostly a clip show. What I say is, yeah, but clip shows rule. It's all the best part. This is the thing. (laughs) Okay, this is why we're showing this movie. We love this movie because this is all killer, no filler. Mm -hmm. You will have such a good time at Gamera Super Monster. It's, yeah, it's spectacular. There's something always happening. So get your tickets now and we'll see you at the Fox on April 16th. And we'll probably plug it a few more times. Yes. Maybe not every week. Not not, not every single, it's two months. but, But in April, we'll be plugging this. So this week on our Patreon, Will, what are we doing? Well, we are paying tribute to the recently departed New York Grindhouse distributor, Terry Levine, and his Aquarius releasing company. The man who made Grindhouse, who had the marketing and distribution ideas that when you think of 42nd Street, you're probably thinking at least one thing that Terry Levine did. Oh, yeah. He released movies like The Beyond, Bruce Lee Fights Back from the Grave, Deep Throat, Mm -hmm. folks. And what we'll be talking about specifically is Dr. Butcher MD, a.k.a. A zombie holocaust he makes house calls <laughs> so that's what we're doing on our patreon this week you can subscribe and listen to that at patreon.com slash the important cinema club next week wait what filmmaker are we doing this week or actor or screenwriter 
none of them were doing a critic. That's right. You know, we were doing Graydon Clark, and we thought... <laughs> let's do something we like. <laughs> let, let's let's do someone who probably hasn't even heard of Graydon Clark, and mm. that's Jonathan Rosenbaum, the great Chicago reader critic. I think the greatest American film critic who ever lived. I agree. And My favorite, at he, least. Yeah, definitely. A man who, when you look at his career, like... Forget Roger Ebert, forget Pauline Kael. Jonathan Rosenbaum has always been on the right side of history. Yes. Uh, he's been a little bit grumpy about that, but... He's an eccentric. Yes. He's he's erratic, but, you know, he's the man who is, you know, cheering on and championing people like Bellatar, Abbas, all of the Orson Welles stuff after Kane. And specifically doing it in a way that you read his pieces and you go, I can see the passion there. I want to see these movies. Mm-hmm. He's the one who introduced me to Luc Moulet, he's, which we did an episode many, many years ago. He's the most international of American critics. He's the most kind of, I would say, in a weird way, anti-authoritarian of, because of mm. he's always like calling into question, you know, the... The conditions, you know, the 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 industrial complexes that control like what, what we yeah, see. what is a canon? He wrote a whole book, Movie Wars, about how basically the big studios are keeping you from seeing international cinema. Yeah, and that book was in particular like a, a real jacuzzi about the influence of Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. on controlling the art house film market. Not a not a jacuzzi on you know the other the other stuff, stuff yeah. the other stuff that Harvey Weinstein was guilty of. And I mean, like some of his books, easy recommendations: Essential Cinema, Movies as Paul. Politics, mm. Placing Movies, Goodbye Cinema, Hello Cinephilia. Yeah, all great books I would recommend. Mm. So next week what we're going to do, I think we're going to pick maybe two pieces each that we really love that he's written and just talk about why we love them, how it speaks to who he is. What they mean to what us. What they mean to us, yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, Jonathan Rosenbaum, I discovered him accidentally. No one gave him to me and said, read this. I just stumbled upon it at the library. Me too. And I was like, what, what is this guy? I love this guy. Yeah. So we will talk about that next week. And until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
a mean man abusing a mentally yes. disabled man. We'll get back to that. And then you have Joe Besser. Toss him out. He's not going to be anybody's favorite non-Curly yeah, Stooge. Yeah, sorry. You, you got Shemp, and then you got Curly Joe Dorita. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Curly Joe Dorita a lot. The old, big, bald guy they got. He wasn't even bald when they hired him, I don't think. They no. made him shave his head. Tofu Curly. Tofu Curly. That's, that's right. They got Curly Joe Dorita because the Stooges were popular on television again, and they needed a Curly. Yes. And they were like, okay, let's get, let's get a fat guy who won't ask too many questions yeah won't impose too much we can we'll show up we'll show up we yeah. gotta and he's he's old so he's never gonna become a star mm-hmm. get the rights to all three stooges <laughs> merchandise later on in his life or anything like that yeah <laughs> which he did but when he, they asked me the question my first answer was like curly joe dorita because i thought he meant like not the canonical stooges right and then i thought oh wait not to say curly joe wasn't canonical but he is the one that looks like another guy to confuse children right so so but your favorite stooge who's not curly shemp it was easy yeah yeah shemp Sh- shemp is a dynamo and why why is it shemp for people who maybe they're our age and they grew up saying well shemp is the bad when a shemp one is on tv that i don't want to watch that one which i've heard people say like on podcasts recently oh. and that disgusted me well that no that that's you're not thinking yes if, if you think that way because obviously look we all love curly he's a big baby yes he's, he's delightful a, he, you're a kid you love curly because he acts like an exaggerated version of you and your friends but champ is like an exaggerated version of your alcoholic uncle mm-hmm. you know yes. he, he looks terrible but like as a physical comedian but his face old oh. rubber face himself i mean yeah he's like you know Curly is a birthday cake. Shemp is a good scotch. (laughs) Yeah. You need to be mature enough to appreciate it, right? Mm, Yeah. And, you know, this is something me and Will have said many a times. When Curly gets hit, it's funny because he like squeals and he does something like, oh, whoa. You you hit him with a wrench, the wrench bends. When you hit Shemp with a wrench, he goes, oh, in (laughs) agony. It like grabs at his head and his eyes bug out. And it's funny in a different way. Okay, but now... Least favorite stooge. Yeah, okay. So this is why Will wanted us to talk about this. Because this is a really big... Because, you know... Joe Besser is the least favorite stooge. Okay, that's not a contest. That's, that's a given. But also, like, Joe Besser, I have great respect for Joe Besser yes. as a comedian. Outside of the Three Stooges, yes. a great comedian. Okay, so there's an important distinction here. Because I said an answer that Will went, wait, what? And it's only because I was thinking of, like, what stooge do I think about these days that brings a smile to my face? <laughs> so that's what favorite is, right? Like, what is your favorite, the idea of a stooge that is not... Curly or Shemp? I mean, what is the idea of a stooge that you like the least? Sorry, that was a question. Not that I like the most. Right. Because, you know, that's, you can go in order of those. It's not too Your too least hard. favorite stooge. Yes. And the I one said, that you feel the least affection for. Yes. And I know that if Gilbert Gottfried was still alive, he would burst through the door when I said, I don't know, Larry, maybe? Oh. And I only say this because I think of Larry, and he is an essential part of the stooges. Un- Deniably, mm-hmm. he's in the middle. Me, like, if you think of the Stooges without Larry, again, like Will said, it's just a mean guy hurting another guy. Now, would the Stooges work even if it was Mo, Shemp, and Curly? Now, that's an interesting combination because when you hear that, you think, well, how th- there's got to be a guy who's not funny there. That's the thing is that like Larry is technically the not funny guy, but he absorbs everything. Yes, he absorbs, he's in the middle. He's a buffer. Yeah. And if you have Curly and Champ, they're both so big in such different directions. Now, oddly enough, 
the Marx Brothers, you've got three funny guys. Yes. Groucho, Harpo, Chico. But they're funny in different ways. That's true. Yeah. But, well, okay, Curly and Shemp are funny in different ways. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, but they're but they're, they're they bounce funny. off each other. Yeah, they are. But like Curly and Shemp, they're both taking physical damage. Yeah. So like, let's break down the Marx Brothers, right? I guess two of them are kind of verbal comedians. Well, you but, got, but you, in different stratas, though. All, There's a low yeah. and the more high, like smart guy looking doing comedy. Yeah, they're they're also like a little bit. They're independent units within the Marx Brothers. Like Groucho will come on and he'll do his thing, and then Harpo and Chico will come on and they'll do their thing, yeah. and then eventually they'll unite. But like Larry by himself, what is that? It's nothing. Yeah, it's nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> but is glue could be the most important part of something because without it, it would fall apart. So there's an interesting movie called Rockin' in the Rockies. Mm-hmm. It's not interesting in any way, except that it was like an attempt to make a Three Stooges feature film with Mo, Larry, and Curly. And they very clearly tried to adopt the Marx Brothers persona. Yeah. So like Mo is very clearly Groucho in that film. And the other two are like a duo, like Harpo and Chico. And they were like, this is the only way we can make a feature out of this. And it failed. But but it makes me think that like, if it were Mo, Larry, and Sh- if it were, sorry, if it were Mo, Shemp, and Curly, mm-hmm. there would have to be some fundamental reconsideration of what the dynamic is. It, yes. it, it can't just be like Mo is beating up these two because the two those two would overpower Mo. They're mm-hmm. too powerful together. Yeah, they're too powerful individually. Yes. Now Larry, <laughs> he looks funny. Yeah, he sounds funny. And and I also think the fact and that, he has to keep up with them as well. And the fact that he looks so funny and he does so little is funny yes. in itself. Now and Larry would take hits too as part of the gang. Yeah, he would never be the central conceit of it. Now, why do I say he's my least favorite? Yeah, because wait a minute. Yeah, fucking Curly Joe Dorita sucks. He sucks. He's terrible. But the fact that he exists is so funny to me. <laughs> yeah. The fact that you look at records of the Three Stooges, those were only made after they were popular. Once Curly was gone, it is Curly Joe's face smiling at me in all of that stuff. The idea of throughout the 1960s, these three men were going from town to town, yeah. doing their live act, making movies mm-hmm. to an audience of like eight year olds. Yeah. And every single one of those eight year olds was watching Curly on TV every day. And they were like, there's Curly. <laughs> yes. But it's not Curly. <laughs> That's so funny. The real me. Curly died 15 years ago. <laughs> it's it's Curly, Curly Joe. Joe. It's not even that like he's trying trying to do curly because he's not he can't do it no so it's so funny <laughs> that he's there <laughs> like you when you were looking for stuff that you wanted to put on your wall you went right to curly joe dorita you're right i did you did yeah. like if you had a choice between hey you can have a piece of the boxers of curly joe dorita or larry which one would you pick it's curly joe i know i think you've answered your yeah. question <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, it, and people may be saying like, oh, it's like novelty. I didn't say he was the funniest. I think Larry is clearly funnier than Curly Joe. I think, yeah, I think Larry, his, he understands the dynamic better. He mm-hmm. understands his place in the dynamic mm-hmm. better. His sense of comic timing in a subtle way is very good. Was he the last one to pass away? No, the Cur- Curly Joe was the last one. <laughs> Which is so funny. But he's the one that like you hear all the fans. They didn't go to Curly Joe. They went to Larry in the old folks home. Yeah, because he would just, you know, you could drop in and he yeah. loved to visit people. By the way, folks, if you want to have a good laugh, Google Curly Joe Dorita Grave. <laughs> oh, is it like one of the stooges? There's an etching of his face and it says the last stooge. <laughs> it's on his tombstone. Legally, that is correct. <laughs> is it right beside Bob Kane's grave where it's like the creator of Batman with the giant bat? Yeah. <laughs> 